don't want to scare anyone. But I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature. You got to do something. Jason's alive. He killed my friend, now he's coming for me. Welcome to Bede and Steve vs. Cab Crystal Lake the official spin-off podcast of Bede vs. the Living Dead that's hosted by Bede the Terrible Aussie Jemine and Stephen T. Bolts. Good at camp blood, ain't ya? Never come back again. It's got a death curse. This is the podcast where your hosts examine the entire Friday the 13th franchise along with its fan films, rip-offs, comic books, unproduced screenplays, and so much more. Kill her, Mommy. The following podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Jason's out there. Watching. G'day everyone, this is Mind, aka The Terrible Australian, and welcome to the debut episode of Beaded Steve vs. Cab Crystal Lake, the spin-off podcast to Bead vs. The Living Dead, where my co-host Stephen T. Boltz and I discuss the entire Friday the 13th franchise, along with its fan films, unproduced screenplays, comics, TV series, and so much more. So... Thank you for everyone for tuning in to this debut episode. But before we go any further, I got to introduce, of course, my co-host for this series, Stephen T. Bolts. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Hey, Beat. I'm all right. I'm good. Yes. Yes. And we're, we're both very excited to kind of sit down and do this debut episode of our podcast and uh, the talk of Friday the 13th and, uh, and other things as well. This is great. This is one that uh, probably put me on the road to where I am as a as a horror as a horror kid um, In- today. This would be one of the one of the first sort of big ones. Like I'd been watching, you know, I watched Creature Double Feature on Saturdays, obviously mm. as as a little one. But uh, in the in the adolescent years, this was this was the kicker. This was the one that put me over the line. Oh, definitely, definitely. And this is a show that you and I have been talking about doing for quite a while now, probably earlier this year, as we sort of stated in the episode on Return of the Living Dead of my other podcast, Bead vs. the Living Dead, which you were a guest on. The funny thing is the inception of this show basically kind of started when you and I and your lovely wife, Lou, went to a screening of Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, That was in March. That was in March. We went to Acme and um, you and I sitting there talking about Night of the Living Dead, talking about your podcast. And Mm. I don't even know how we got on the topic, man. Do you remember? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'm assuming it was probably you at some point bringing up Friday the 13th. And then it kind of just spiraled from there. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. And we, we pretty much hit it like we had it all mapped out on the day. This was like essentially, just, yeah, just snowballed. That's yeah, that's great. So we've been planning it for a while. Yeah, and I'm excited to get into it, man. Indeed, indeed. And I think what's going to be interesting about our show is, yes, we're going to do all 12 films in the in the series so far. However, though, uh, every third episode, we're going to go a little 
off topic from the main series and kind of discuss other aspects of Friday the 13th. Like I said, we'll be also discussing uh, fan films. We're going to discuss unproduced screenplays, uh, comic books. And one of the ones I'm most looking forward to, which will definitely be our very first one coming up in a few episodes time is international ripoff films of Friday the 13th. <laughs> so I'm very excited to tackle that. So I think that was, this was actually your idea to kind of not just do the entire series in one go and then go into the bonus Friday the 13th content. It yeah, would have... man. Cause there's so much out there. There's mm. so much else out there. And I was thinking initially of the scripts that didn't get made. Mostly, I think we were talking about Freddy versus Jason. And mm. there's something like a dozen scripts out there for that movie oh, yeah. that just did not get made. And some of them, well, most of them are crap, to be honest with you. But one of them specifically, and I won't go into detail right now, but one of them, I thought it's just a crime that it didn't get made, mm. uh, especially in light of the movie that, that you know, did um, get made. <laughs> well i'm definitely excited to talk about that i mean that's the thing though we're going to be doing so many different friday the 13th related topics for this show every third episode so it's exciting to kind of dive into that and also i'm particularly excited to check out the fan films because if night of the living dead is without a doubt the most remade horror film ever made i would have to say based on all my research friday the 13th probably has the most fan films of any horror franchise out yeah. there. Yeah, quite likely. Neck and neck maybe with Halloween, but I, I'd say Friday. I I don't know. I think Jason has a bigger following than Michael. That's my that's my opinion. But I, I do think there there's, uh, and there were a couple that came out um, just recently. Um, oh, yeah, Alice, definitely. Alice made a return in one of yes. those. So we'll, be, we'll be looking at that one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited for those, especially because I did find a playlist on YouTube. I didn't get a chance to send this to you yet that has oh. all of them, and there's about 70 on them. That's fantastic. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll definitely do the bonus episodes, and once we kind of go through the through line of the actual 12 films, then each episode after that will either focus on fan films, comics, as well, unless a new Friday the 13th property <laughs> is released. Hopefully at some point, because now that the whole legal stuff with Friday the 13th yeah. has been organized, and it's kind of weird because I was actually literally talking about this with a friend the other day, that like how the rights and all that have been split up, like certain rights holders have certain aspects of the franchise, while others have other aspects of the franchise. But Brian Fuller, who the creator of shows such as Pushing Daisies at Hannibal, he is making his own Friday the 13th TV series called Crystal Lake, which hopefully will be out next year. And he's teaming up with the film studio A24 for that one. And based on what I have heard, like somebody asked him online, like because of the whole right situation, which aspects from the series will be in the show. And he pretty much said everything because i guess the tv rights are different from the film rights oh wow okay that's insane i love that you're gonna get into a james bond situation with the movies you know uh, different studios and everything but uh i didn't know that about the series yeah it was a, uh, a different rights situation that's that's great that's great yeah well i'm excited for that and maybe at some point even though jason Voorhees himself isn't involved with this but we might also have to, at some point, do the previous Friday the 13th series, 
which was made by the same people, but it's kind of mainly in title only compared to absolutely in title only. <laughs> let's just let's let's uh, uh, talk about the David Cronenberg directed episodes for that yes. one. Just just because that's if if we're gonna throw um sort of go off on a tangent with that one, let's go way off. Yes, exactly. Maybe like talk about specific episodes in each like yeah. uh, from each season, or even do a bracket like for a couple of episodes of the first season then another episode we do the next couple of episodes and so on and so forth so that's a big we've got all this stuff all organized <laughs> audience for this podcast but before we actually get into our main topic tonight we also are going to have a question for the both of us and this is one when in the future if we do have guests who come on the show as well we'll ask this same question as well so steve do you remember the first time you ever saw the Friday the 13th franchise? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, my introduction to Friday the 13th was from a um, from a famous Monsters special issue. Uh, it was uh, the film fantasy yearbook from uh, 1980, uh, 1982. And I, I have it to this day. Uh, it was one of the, I was duped into buying it because of the Raiders of the Lost Ark cover. And um, <laughs> uh, they have tote on the on the front cover melting right and i was like oh raiders so i jumped in on this and what they all, all it was it was a yearbook basically um um some of the some of the articles on the biggest movies of the of the year and um the friday the 13th part two article in there was oddly a recap of the movie like a blow by blow scene for scene recap it wasn't an article about the making of the film didn't have any you know interviews with any of the the writer director anything like this it was literally just a a uh, a recap of the film i love this i used to read this aloud at recess at my at my school uh for entertainment value it was fantastic so that was my introduction to the franchise but the first movie that i saw was three. Oh, actually really? Saw, actually, saw the movies in reverse. I went to see three in the cinema in 3D with my buddy, uh, my buddy Vince, Vince Levy. So we went to see that, and then I saw the other two on HBO late night. Probably Vince was probably there. I remember my cousin Jason watching. So we we did see them in in reverse order. Um, three, two, and then finally got to see one where it all started. So that was uh, uh it was a bit bizarre because then we you know we have to piece things together. Do you know what I mean? But um, uh, there is the the lengthy introduction uh, to part two, you know, mm. where Alice has her dream sequence. So that sort of recapped part one for us. So we weren't totally in the dark when it came to that. But yeah, that was it, man. That was that was my intro. About you? Well, well, pretty much. I'm gonna say this when it comes to my first introduction to the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. There's one. I, I was probably a lot of people out there, including you as well. I was, the first Friday the 13th film I ever saw was one of the sequels rather than the first. And that film was Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. That was oh, wow. the that was the very first Friday the 13th film I ever saw. And I remember it vividly because when I was a young kid and early teenager, I used to be terrified of horror films. I would not watch any of them. I would even avoid the horror section of the video shop, so I wouldn't see any of the covers. Because I remember vividly specific covers, like Night of the Demons 2 or Brain Dead, just like specific covers, right. and they would just freak me out. And even um, 
Jason Goes to Hell. That was another video cover I do remember I used to be freaked out by when I was young. But at the same time, though, I was still fascinated by horror films because, like, I did watch some, like, Bram Stoker's Dracula, a the Alien series, Predator. But at the same time, I wouldn't really count those as my first real introduction to horror because I would watch them in, like, chunks and then I'd be too scared that I'd have to <laughs> either have to leave the room, duck behind the couch. So pretty much I would always associate horror with just being scared. So when I was about 14, 15... I decided to have a party with a bunch of school friends of mine at my house. And we had the the back shed. So we had the party out there. We all had a great time, a lot of good food and music and all that. And uh, my friends, because it was basically like, it was an equal opportunity party. So both boys and girls showed up, but it was also going to be a sleepover as well. But so the girls had to leave. So the rest of us guys, we had to stay behind. So we had decided like for the rest of the night, couple of friends of mine rented out a whole bunch of movies for us to watch they even rented out a couple of horror movies now i can't remember which friend of mine brought them over but one of the horror films that he brought over was friday the 13th part 7 the new blood <laughs> like like many people i knew who jason was because i mean at this point when i in the late 90s you know friday the 13th jason Voorhees was already a pop yeah. culture so even if you've never seen a film you would know who he is because he's that iconic of a character so i was like oh okay well we'll watch this and um and i i'm not gonna lie steve that movie changed my entire life <laughs> okay hit me tell me okay the reason that. why that movie changed my life because watching it with a bunch of friends and all that that was the movie that made me realize like, I wasn't scared by the film, but what it made me realize is, oh, horror movies can be fun. And not every horror film has to set out to scare you. So from there, I just was immediately hooked. And then after, I think I uh, the day after the party, I think, uh, well, one of my friends, he lent me the videos. And I think I rewatched the film again the next day. <laughs> And from there, it was an obsession with me, with uh, horror. Like, and it's kind of funny because literally a few months prior to seeing the film, I was going to go to a double feature of Scream and Scream 2 at my local cinema with my cousin. I ended up having a panic attack before the movie even, no. the first movie even started. And I left because I was too freaked out by the whole idea of seeing those films in the cinema. Oh so I think, yeah, so basically, and mind you, I was about 13, 14 at the time. So I think the new blood kind of just shows me like, oh, horror films can be fun. They don't have to scare you. And then from there, I just became obsessed with <laughs> horror. And because of Friday the 30 Part 7, the new blood, but just the entire genre, I mean, entire franchise in particular, I owe to because they made me into the horror fan I am today. That's great. Did you go on a binge then? Did you get them from your friends and just watch them straight through? Oh, I just ended up watching them myself, like going down the video shop. Well, I probably only could rent the ones that, because at the time, the latter ones were rated M. So I was only able to get those ones. I can't remember which ones after that I saw. Mm. But then eventually, I think one time on pay TV, one movie channel was playing the first Friday the 13th film, so I watched that, but then a separate channel that same day 
called Arena. And they used to have this TV show on there that's kind of very similar to like an Elvira, Joe Bob Briggs style of horror TV show called The Graveyard Shift that was hosted by a woman named Tabitha. During the show one night, they played both two and three back to back. Tonight on The Graveyard Shift, it's TFI Friday. It's Kim Blood, and I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. Due to popular demand, it's Friday the 13th, part two. You're all doomed. You're all doomed. And the campfire carnage continues in Friday the 13th, part three. Evening shifties, tonight on the Graveyard Shift, we've got two classic Friday features. Friday the 13th, parts two and three. Forget part one, everybody's seen that. We're skipping straight to the sequel. Ah, TFI Friday, and thank goodness we brought a spare chainsaw. All of that after this. Nice. So I end up watching those, and yeah, pretty much like I became obsessed with this franchise. Uh, that's what, when I was younger, the slasher franchise was the first one I gravitated to in terms of horror franchises. I mean, horror genres, I should say. And then from there, it kind of just spiraled into me of being a, like, I'm near, I'm going to be 39 in November. So I've been a, I've been a horror fan for 25 years due to the Friday the 13th <laughs> franchise. So I owe everything that I am as a person, as a film fan, and as a horror fan to this franchise. So, oh, man. Oh, man. That's great. So that's why when you kind of, you and I were talking about doing this show, I was very excited about because I can finally sit down and talk about like why the series means a lot to me, what I think of the individual films themselves, and also going into all the different aspects of uh, Friday the 13th that are out there outside of this franchise. So I guess we could go straight into it because I think that after talking about that is the good jumping off point to finally getting into the series, so it only makes sense that we talk about the original film, the one that started it at all, Halloween 19 from 1978. Oh, wait, no, that was the movie it ripped, it, it ripped off. Um, See, now I gotta contest that, man. I gotta contest that. Now, I know, I know, you know, um, Sean Cunningham was like, oh, check it out. This one made a shit ton of money. We'll do the same. But I think to say rip off, I mean, that's not. That's just not cool, man. That's just not cool because the two, <laughs> the two movies really, they share nothing except yeah. a killer. But that's like saying, you know, oh, God, Alien is the same as E.T. because they mm. both have, you know, an extraterrestrial. It's – and I know everybody, you know, makes a comparison to Halloween. Mm. Um, but the – obviously the, the uh, Giallo influence, you've got, you know, Baba's mm. Bay of Blood there. The first act of Bay of Blood – is is basically um Friday the 13th, you know, compact, okay? Yeah. We all, you know, we all know this. This has been covered 100, you know, 100 times. But when I was watching it yesterday, there were certain things that I I picked out that I had not before. I was mm. trying to watch it because like you say, you know, we we grew up like I I was by the time I saw 3, Jason Voorhees was just he was already the the icon, mm. okay? Yeah. So pop and and for yourself like pop culture wise coming into it uh, where you did, we already knew that. So I was trying to watch it yesterday as though in a vacuum because mm. pop Pop culture ruined the experience of seeing, well, Famous Monsters ruined the experience of seeing <laughs> the first one for me because it does. It recaps, tells you who the killer is in the first movie, and you just know everything. I um, I often think about, uh, I had the same experience with Psycho, 
Like by mm. the time you see Psycho, even as a kid, you already know Norman Bates, right? And I, I always think about trying to watch Psycho like the audiences did back then. You know, mm. like in the original release, and can you can you look at this in a, in a vacuum? That you are still surprised when Marion Crane gets killed half an hour into the movie. And I tried to do this yesterday, and while I didn't get the, because of you know, like yourself probably, you've seen Friday the Thirteenth. I don't know when people say, "Oh, I must have seen that six or seven times." I'm like, amateur. You know, this is <laughs> we've seen this several dozen times in our mm. in our lives. So it's really hard to not anticipate what's coming next, you know? Oh, yeah. And and after a while, you start looking outside the frame of the movie and you start, you know, really looking at the effects and things like this. But yesterday, I said, no, none of that. Just look at it on its own. And I I started thinking about that opening, the opening scene mm. with uh, Claudette and Barry at the camp in 1958 and just how very much that is ripped off. And I... I I say that in the kindest way possible of Jaws. That's the opening scene of Jaws. Oh yeah. You get the campfire, the, you know, and people want to make all the comparisons to Halloween. I'm like, dude, there is literally nothing <laughs> except a bladed instrument that, that, that Halloween and, and Friday have in common. Um, so I'm looking at, I'm looking at this yesterday, like I said, like a, like a new experience. Mm. Having said that, I did what I always do when possible with movies that I haven't seen. And I, I, I read the script first because I love, <laughs> I love reading the script and I love seeing the, the, the transition, you know, from, yep. from, from page to screen. And um, did you know about the, oh, I guess, I guess you'd call it a, a um, urban legend about the deleted kill in the beginning the claw oh yeah yeah. yeah yeah well um before we get into that i'll do the actual real introduction for the movie. <laughs> i i kind of did that the halloween paint is more of a joke because i <laughs> i re-watched the segment from uh the great fantastic documentary crystal lake memories the complete history of friday the 13th uh, yeah. which uh kind of dived into that. and of course sean s cutting air kind of basically it's like oh yeah let's just go rip off this movie so i just want to bring that up but i enjoyed the spiel that you went through See, what? this is why I'm sorry. you and I... I'm sorry, Bean. I thought we were starting the show. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> that's why I am glad you're my co-host on this show, because <laughs> obviously, like me, you have a passion for all this. So we'll get straight to it and talk about <laughs> the original, the classic 1980 film, Friday the 30th. Hello? Who's that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? One. Imagination. 
seven. Can I help you? which was directed by Sean S. Cunningham, written by Victor Miller. And this film stars Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, Harry Crosby, Janine Taylor, Laurie Bartram, Mark Nelson, Robbie Morgan, Peter Brewer, Rex Everhart, Ron Carroll, Walt Groney, and Kevin Bacon. And the plot summary for this film, which I am reading off IMDb, is a group of camp counsellors trying to reopen a summer camp called Crystal Lake which has a grim past, are stalked by a mysterious killer. Now, before we get to... <laughs> <laughs> I, have to I have to ask, if you don't already know all that, why are you listening to this podcast? Exactly. Say, <laughs> so, I'll, I'll let the audience know, like, compared to my other show, which is, this, this is the spinoff to Beavis of the Living Dead, we won't be doing a recap of the plots of this film, like, from beginning to end, because... Compared to all the different versions of Night of the Living Dead are out there, which are all kind of different in their own way. As, <laughs> uh, everyone has seen every entry on Friday the 13th, so I think it doesn't really... It, so we don't necessarily need to explain the plot again. So <laughs> Preaching to the choir on that one, I believe. Exactly, exactly. But before we go into your further thoughts on the opening <laughs> scene, because I do want to talk about this. I do want to talk about this. But Steve, your initial thoughts on the original Friday the 13th? Um, I went through a period in the 80s where I just stopped watching it. I had oh. seen it too many times. And when I came back to it, I was a little older and a little wiser. And I look at it now as, I, I mean, what can I say about it that, that hasn't been said? You know, it's mm. a, I think it's a great movie. I think obviously it kickstarted Apart from Halloween, I guess it depends on your point of view. I, for for you and I, it kickstarted mm. our careers in in um, in horror. But I think it is a I think it's a dare I use the word masterpiece? Speed. It is a flawed masterpiece. Mm. It is a flawed masterpiece. And I happen to I happen to think that flaws are a beautiful thing. Flaws are necessary. And it's something doesn't have to be perfect and flawless in order to be, you know, to be loved. I think if you love something, uh, you love it for its flaws. And that's, that's how I see this one. This is such a, an amalgam, like we were talking about, I mean, you know, Halloween, um, Bay of Blood, uh, Jaws, even some Psycho in there, mm. you know? Um, and it, it really, it really is uh, a culmination of things uh, that came before it, but one that does bring uh bring something new you know to the 
to the story. And I, I just think it's, I just think it's fantastic. It's my second favorite movie in the franchise, be honest with you. But um, yeah, I just, you know, man, I, I, I love it. I dig it. I go back to it every, every Friday, the 13th. uh, And sometimes there's way, you know, too many in a year, but I, I go between this one, part two and part four. Those are my go-tos. A couple years ago, I did do the Tommy trilogy, but that hurts. That one hurts. (laughs) This is, this is the go-to man. This is the go-to. Yeah. Well, I guess for me, it's funny though, because having seen the original film so many times over the years and rewatching it again in prep for this episode, I think one of the things that strikes me most about this film, like it definitely, yes, Halloween was kind of like the first big major slasher. It's not the very first one that was made, but it was kind of the one that was the most famous when it came out. But I would say Friday the 13th, when it came out, kind of perfected the formula when it came to slashes. And, but that being said though, watching this film again, it kind of (laughs) feels like it's definitely one of the more tamer entries in the (laughs) franchise to quote the Simpsons. Uh... (laughs) Lisa, that wasn't scary. Not even for a poem. Well, it was written in 1945. Maybe people were easier to scare back then. Oh, yeah. Like when you look at Friday the 13th Part 1. It's pretty tame by today's standards. What I think is interesting about this film compared to the later entries that kind of really kind of relish the the characteristics and the tropes of the slasher genre. But this one though, kind of watching it again, there's also kind of a sense of naturalism to it. Yeah. Because you kind of watch it, especially interactions with the characters, they almost don't feel scripted. They almost kind of feel improvised. And especially when you're at the at a Camp Crystal Lake with the new counselors, their interactions with each other, they don't, I know it's all scripted, but it doesn't feel scripted. Like there's sort of this kind of almost naturalistic feel to the entire film that kind of, when you kind of look at it compared to the rest of the franchise, obviously, because this movie was made in 79 to start off with, then released in 1980. So this film was kind of, was being made in the later period, like the last year of the seventies when Horror films of the 70s had that kind of feel as well. Mm-hmm. So if you when you watch the very first Friday the 13th, it definitely still has that 70s feel to it from the way it's made, the way it looks, from the performances. Uh, I don't want to say documentary style because it's clearly not no. a documentary, <laughs> but it does ha- but it has a lot of DNA with a lot of films from that from the 70s that kind of go for that kind of feel like something like Terrence Malick's early work not to say this movie's on the <laughs> same level as something Bad like Badlands right Badlands <laughs> or even Days of Heaven but that kind of like naturalistic vibe yeah no it's know? got a yeah yeah it's got a a verite thing going for it like with and you I mean like I said I I read the script moments before I was reading it as I was watching the movie okay <laughs> is what I was doing and a lot of there are a lot of changes uh, uh, from from script to screen, and it's not it's not like anything huge. I think you're right. Like I don't have any confirmation of this whatsoever, but I think the script was more of a blueprint, and that's mm. why the dialogue does feel so naturalistic. There are lines in the script that appear in the movie. Absolutely, uh, I'm not saying they just you know 
just went off a book entirely. But uh, the 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 relationship between the people, I think, comes across in in the dialogue as natural because it was a lot of it was natural. Definitely, definitely, and I think that's kind of what makes watching it again makes it feel so different from the other entries in the franchise. But also, Bart Simpson was kind of right in a way. I mean, yes, in a, in a sense, like, yes, it is tamer to compare to what the, the series would be in the years to come. Like, when it does go with the gore, it still hits hard. But I, I was kind of surprised, like, really, most of the deaths happen off screen or you don't actually see the death. Like, yeah. I mean, I can even count on one hand how many characters we actually see die on screen, and most of the other characters are killed off screen. Yeah, I can think of, uh, well, Brenda and Bill are killed mm. off screen. Ned is killed off screen. We, mm. we don't see any of that. Um, Steve is a bloodless killing, entirely mm. bloodless. Marcy gets it. You know, Marcy really gets it, and um, Annie. Yeah, in the beginning. But you're right. Like as I was watching it, like we get the we get the kill of the the two counselors in the um in the beginning, uh, mm. Claudette and Barry, and then uh oh, it's just Annie coming to town and all of this all of this business. We meet the we meet the other kids, and then Annie is taken out, and then nothing, mm. nothing scares with um with with crazy ralph with the, the great walt gorney by the way oh yeah uh you know so you've got jump scares with crazy ralph hiding in the uh in the cupboard in the pantry there um a couple of other uh, things you know um alice screaming with the snake it brings bill running and all of these things so there are there are moments of tension there are moments of scares but no really big kills apart from the hook in the beginning and um mm. i guess you you would yeah, Claudette, Claudette and um, Barry are the hook. Uh, apart from Annie, soon after that, there's nothing for quite a while. And Ned, Ned is the first that we see, and he's a reveal. We don't even mm. see him killed. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, well, actually, we're kind of forgetting uh, probably the most famous kill in this movie, Steve, uh, Kevin Bacon's death with the arrow uh, through the throat. That's that's so good. That's so good. The... <laughs> I've got this, the, you know, you probably have it as well. The Savini effects book with sketches yes. of how this is done. And it's so fascinating. Do you remember watching that for the first time going, how in the name of God did they pull that off? Like, oh, it's yeah. just so good. Although I have to say though, now that I'm sort of on reflection, like watching the film for the first time back when I first saw it, I have to admit, like, I think the version I saw was a slightly edited version because you saw the arrow go through the neck, but then it cuts right there. So you don't see, like, from the front view of Kevin Bacon with the blood squirting yeah. out, hitting his face and all that. But it is a very memorable death scene. And I like the sort of the build-up because he's just sitting there smoking pot. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he feels a drip on his face, sees that it's blood, and then the killer is under the bed, grabs him, then puts the arrow through his throat. I have it, it's an amazing death, but at the same time, it has to take a lot of strength to like get an arrow, throw it through a mattress, oh. and then throw it through someone's the physics through neck. Do not work. The physics mm. in this just do not work. But but we don't question it at all. Mm. Not at all. The um the kill the prowler in the script the prowler had mm. to have uh Freddy Krueger dream sequence arms in order to reach from under the bed and hold him 
right? Mm. The the arrow could not have been as long as it was to go, yeah. you know, to fit under the bed. None of this matters because you see it and it's like, holy shit, it's such a shocker. It's so good. I did watch the um, unrated cut. Yes. I did as well, Phil. Yeah, okay, uh, good. Prep yeah. For this episode. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in there. I think Marcy has um uh the axe in the face. There's some there's some close-ups there that didn't make it to the to the theatrical cut. It really did. And this was we we've got to um we've got to take a minute and talk about Savini. Oh yeah. I mean the 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 work that he did before this is, you know, um not to be dis- discounted, but this is what made him a rock star. In my opinion, mm. this was like this was it. This is what put him uh, put him on the map. And I just love that, um, you know, he, he came back for four to kill Jason off. His whole thing was like, I, you know, I helped give birth to him, so I may as well take him out of the world. And then, of course, you know, six movies later or whatever, they're still going. But I I love the effects in this and I love how Savini, um, his style is to use as much of the actor as possible not so much with the the dummies and and things like that i mean poor poor janine taylor as as marcy she's got a, she's got this axe like glued to her face uh to do this effect i think it's just it's fantastic it's, it's such a testament to um to his to his work first of all that even in the cutting you don't you don't question this you don't question mm. the effect it, it looks so good and the only thing in in this new, I'm assuming you watch. So you would have watched the the Screen Factory uh, release as well, and um, it the the you could see the prosthetic on Kevin's yeah. uh, Kevin's neck, and I never could, I never could before with the previous releases. Um, is the only the only letdown in that scene, the only thing that lets you know, oh my god, this is you know, it it brings me back to reality. Oh yeah, like um, as much as that neck kill with the arrow is cool and everything when they do the shot frontward to see his face mm-hmm. his the prosthetic neck is way too long <laughs> it's a little long there's and that reminds me of the one in the burning as well there's a <laughs> there's a shot much like this in the burning and the, it's just it's just too giraffey you know but um <laughs> i don't know if i noticed this in the in the theatrical cut with friday the 13th to be honest i haven't watched it in a while but i want to go i just I want to I want to uh, uh, jump back for a second, um, if we can. I want to look at. Um, I noticed something in the script that, while, like I said, I was trying to watch the watch the movie in a vacuum. I noticed a slight change in the script that actually. I want to get your opinion on this. It changes the movie. It changes some of the context, and I'm not sure for better or worse. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's the fact that when. Um, when the Prowler, uh, who we know as Mrs. Voorhees now, but at the time it was the Prowler, is grappling with Barry in the beginning, the Prowler Ooh. loses their little finger. Yeah. And 22 years later, um, 1980, you see the POV shot, the famous POV shot, looking at the the counselors on the lake. You, you see the, the hand move a branch away, and you can see the missing uh, little finger. Okay, mm-hmm. rather... You can see that the little finger is missing. Let me, let yeah. me say it that way. Okay. And as I'm watching this yesterday, and I felt this before, I think the movie is trying to set Steve Christie up as the killer. Mm. Whereas the script lets you know it's not, because there's no mention of Steve having a, 
you, you know, a missing finger. Let me just run. Let me just run through my my evidence for you, Bede, and then you <laughs> you decide. You come in as the 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 judge and jury at the end of this. Okay. Yes. Um, so, like I said, the, the the prowler loses finger in the beginning. The driver, again, this is in the script. Um, the driver who picks Annie up, uh, the driver of the Jeep who picks Annie up, is missing a finger. Then, then Annie is killed. I'm going off off tangent a little bit, but th this is wild because first of all, I think we're meant to think that uh, she was the hero or what would you know what would become mm. the final girl because we're meeting her before anyone. Yeah. And really, she's just she's just fodder, which is great. But she's wholesome. She loves kids. She had a um, she had a pat the dog moment, you know, mm -hmm. which is which is pure um, uh, hero construction. Right. And then now nope, she's dead. <laughs> OK, which is I just think incredible. But what you get when you meet Steve, you got Ned, Jack and Marcy showing up, they they meet Steve. He's chopping wood. OK, yep. so this could go two ways, mate. And and. In my head, I'm not sure which they want it to go. Is he the studly hero type? Are we meeting the the next possible hero, or are we meeting a possible killer? Because he's really stalkery and jealous with Alice. I think mm. when they have their little conversation when she's nailing up the the gutter, um, he's sort of he's like, oh, you know, you're you're thinking of going back. She's like, yeah, I'm going back to California. He's like, this isn't really for you, is it? He's really, um, if not stalkery, let's say clingy, okay? Yeah. Um, Steve pulls out. Steve's driving a Jeep. Steve's driving a Jeep, just like the person who, who killed Annie, okay? So Steve is then gone for the majority of the movie when mm. uh, Ned is killed, Jack and Marcy are killed. Like, he's he's gone for a good bit of this and then he 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 suddenly he reappears and he's in a diner he's been in a diner for how who knows how long so my thinking here is were they by by they i mean uh probably um sean cunningham was he trying to set him up as a as a red herring there for us you know sort of thinking about that now and watching that section of the documentary last night I honestly feel like, because he pretty much says like throughout most of that section and also others as well, that oh, you're wondering who's the killer, who's the killer, who's doing all this. So I think he may be onto something. I think like if you're watching this film for the first time and we don't know who the killer is at the beginning, that first thought in, in your mind clearly could be like, it could be uh, Steve Christie, because again, like you say, we, he is a little clingy when it comes to Alice. <laughs> he definitely has the hero type, especially in those short shorts he's wearing, um, <laughs> which I need to get to at some point because I need to talk about those short shorts. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's got a good while. And again, I, I keep forgetting he does drive a Jeep, but I'm trying to remember though, is the Jeep that he's driving similar in color to the one that picks up Addie in the it film? Is. It is. it is, or at least similar enough to make no difference. Right? Oh, okay. So because I do believe that's part of the setup. So you you get to this point at the diner, you, you realize he's not oh. the killer, but maybe he is the hero. So he's headed back. Um, uh, his Jeep gets uh, back part way. He gets to Crystal Lake and he sees someone who we don't mm. see, but who he appears to recognize. And then, bang, he's stabbed and killed. Right. 
65 <laughs> minutes into the movie, which um, you know, you know, Bede, that I am a structure monkey. I follow uh, uh, the hero's journey like like it's the Bible. This is 66% of the way through the movie, which is generally the false death of the hero, or in this case, the death of the false hero. I love mm. this. I absolutely love this. For for um for a for a movie that really is an ensemble piece, mm. right? The fact that it follows this classic mythic structure, uh, it fascinates me as well. I I just want to um I'll I'll get off this in a minute. By the way, I just want to go back. <laughs> I want to go back to the to the missing to the missing finger uh, because you're trying to think of it as okay, you know I haven't seen the movie before. Um, we've just been thrown two loops, bang, bang, like a, a double punch, right? And I'm thinking, okay, so in the script though, we know that it couldn't be Steve Christie, like not at all. There's no mention of a missing finger on Steve, like I said, but again, he probably would have been, I don't know, 12 or 13 in 1958. Mm. So he's definitely not the killer there. He could be a second generation killer. There could yeah. be something like he's taking up the mantle from his family or something, but it, it never feels like that's the way it's going. Um, the movie has this instead, like like you were saying about the the Daco, it's like it could be anybody. So it's got this it's got this weird um, ten little Indians feeling to it. Like we've mm. we've been we've been introduced to possible red herrings. There's there's uh, Crazy Ralph. There's Steve. It could be it could be the 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 really obnoxious cop. Who who pulls up um, to talk to to warn them about Crazy Ralph? There there are several people that it could could be. Um, so you 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 think it's going to be someone we've already met, and it's one of those things that elevates the film a little bit. You know, gives it that mm. sort of Agatha Christie uh, uh, feeling. But the 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 script really doesn't bother with that moment. It goes instead for the the ancient evil returns vibe, mm. where it throws the it throws a new character at you in the third act and says, oh, here's our killer. It's someone you could not possibly have considered it ever being. And that's one of the, I mentioned the flaws. That's that's one that gets me every time. That's one that gets me. I'm like, if we were supposed, if this is set up like a, almost like a whodunit, which it feels like it is, You've you've got to you've got to give us our rogues gallery, right? We need mm. we need we need people to choose from, and in the end, it goes, "Nah, it's just kidding. It was this person all along." So mm. that 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 gets me. That gets me. But I do. Um, uh, I do, the, the, the uh, another thing that I that I thought of it, where they're setting it up uh, the jeep thing is when Brenda. You remember Brenda comes crashing through the window. Yep. Uh, dead Brenda, and Alice just freaks out. She sees a car pull up. She sees the jeep pull up out front she runs out and she starts screaming steve oh steve so even she thinks it's steve and mm. that's when we're introduced to um to mrs Voorhees at that point but that's you know that was my take on this watching it yesterday in a vacuum i'm like i, I do believe i do believe they're setting steve up as a possible possible killer here i'm not sure the payoff on that was was great hmm like, I think you definitely have some really good points there. And I think what's interesting now that I sort of think about it now, the film does try to subvert our expectations because we have the character of Addie at the beginning of the film who we automatically, and like, even with the first time I watched this film, I just assume, oh, this is our main character. Right. <laughs> and, but they do a psycho and they kill her off, like, within the first 10, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. 
of the film. And they really do set her up quite well. She's likable. She's charming. She's dedicated to the job that she wants to do. And like, yeah, she kind of scoffs at all the townies, like telling her that, oh, she shouldn't go to get cat blood because of what happened. Did he tell you anything? Who? Your boss, Steve Christie. Oh, I'll be cooking for 50 kids and 10 staff. Campers will mostly be like inner city children. I mean about what happened. No. something you're not telling me. Quit. Quit now. Quit? Why would I want to quit? Camp Crystal Lake is jinxed. Oh, terrific. Not you, too. You sound like your crazy friend back there, Ralph. Well, maybe. Did Christy tell you about the two kids murdered in 58? Huh? Boy drowning in 57? A bunch of fires? Nobody knows who did any of them. In 1962, they was going to open up. The water was bad. Christy will wind up just like these folks, crazy and broke. He's been up there a year fixing up that place. He must have dropped $25,000. And for what? Ask anybody. Quit. I can't. Dumb kids. Know-it-alls. Just like my nieces. Heads full of rocks. American original. I'm an American original. Dumb kid. At least I'm not afraid of ghosts. And she's also a pretty trustworthy person, but at the same time, though, that kind of trustworthiness kind of gets her killed at the end. Not that I'm victim shaming. I'm just saying <laughs> she's all. It's like, yeah, it kind of really does set her up as to be our main protagonist. But the movie surprises us by killing her off early. But now I now thinking about it, what listening to you just now about Steve, like I kind of try again, try to imagine seeing this back in 1980. Like with Steve being gone for quite a while through the film, like, okay, could he be our killer? That would make sense. And then when he shows up at the diner, you automatically think, oh, he's far away from the camp. He could be our hero character, but then, of course, he gets killed off. Now, I never really thought about that possibility of him being almost the hero type in the story or being set up as a possible red herring. Well, red herring, now that I think about it, makes total sense. Mm -hmm. But him possibly being the hero type and then killed off so quickly, I could definitely see them going for that because it would make it much more interesting. Because, yeah, Steve's like the oldest one there. He's like the leader of the group. And his short shorts are amazing. I'm just saying it right now. <laughs> Seriously, his get up in when we first introduced him, he's got the short shorts. He has the little scarf around his neck and the glasses. <laughs> this dude is like, <laughs> I, I am not. Some, I, I, if Steve is not a gay icon, I don't know who is because he could totally be a gay icon. <laughs> he could, couldn't he? He absolutely yeah. could. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. It was the um the 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 little bandana. That, yes, that exactly. Cap it caps it off. It absolutely mm. caps it off. It's great. Mm. But also, like um, of course, his interaction with uh, Alice. It's very obvious. Like they do have a thing, or at least like 
maybe you had slept together or maybe had a bit of a relationship or I think it even in the doco Adrian King says like yeah Steve was definitely pining for it but nothing really happened but okay. if none of the kills ever happened maybe their relationship could have gone a little bit further because it's very obvious like yeah he's a little cliggy but she does have some kind of feelings for him as well I always so, got the impression that she was trying to trying to scrape him off like yeah. she was like oh you know i might go back to california and he's like this isn't really your thing is it she's like mm. oh you know i think she was looking for a way out i think we caught them the way it feels to me um uh mm. it, we caught them not at the end of a relationship but after a fling mm. that just it's it's over for her it's over mm. for her and she's she's trying to trying to get um trying to get away um mm. there's a the, the character bill yeah, uh, played by Harry Crosby, uh, um, who also comes across as somewhat of a somewhat of a hero type. You're absolutely right, by the way. And and uh, let me just let me just um, not retract my my statement about Mrs. Voorhees showing up in the third act, but by consistently pulling the rug out from under us, with you know, oh here's you know here's Annie, she's your hero. Nope, she's dead. Here's Steve. He's a red herring. Wait, no, he's not. He's your hero. Wait, no, he's not. He's dead. You know, doing doing things like this, maybe throwing Mrs. Voorhees at us at the end is just another uh, way to to sort of subvert, you know, mm. the 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 story that they're telling. But in the in the script, uh, and this goes this speaks to the relationship uh, between Steve and um, Alice. I felt like there was meant to be a little pull between Alice and Bill. Like there's mm. this little sort of blossoming romance there. So what you've got is this love triangle happening over over a summer, right? Mm. And it that doesn't so much come across in the script, but I think that's another one of these subversions. You know, oh, it's okay. We can see these three. This is going to be this is going to be something. And then it's not. No, this isn't about that. You know, another rug that they pulled from us. So, um, yeah, no, I am going to retract. I am. There are no flaws in this movie. I, I take it back. I take it all back. This it's a perfect gem of a film. It really is. Well, well, now that I think about it now, like looking back when I first saw the film for the first time, I honestly thought Bill was gonna stay around for a while and maybe again possibly be the hero. Like I did think about that with Steve until you mentioned it, mm -hmm. but I did think about that with Bill, because I honestly thought the way how the film sets it up as a there may be something there between him and Alice, or at least something blossoming as well, because it's very clear, like, yeah, she's kind of maybe on the outs with Steve, but she's definitely, there's definitely good chemistry between her and Bill. Yeah. So, and I thought, okay, we might see him around for a while. I mean, he probably might get killed, but he might be like the hero. But then when she goes to where the generator is in the shed and then closes the door behind her, and then we see him... Oh up on that door with all the arrows through him. <laughs> and I took notice where where the arrows are because he has an arrow in the eye mm. and a couple other places. But, I mean, I've always noticed this, but I cut, now that I sort of think about it now, did you notice, though, that he has an arrow in the crotch area? No. So that makes me think, obviously, because as when we find out about that the killer is actually Pablo Vores, later on in the story because remember she blames camp counselors for going off having sex while her son jason drowned so 
maybe in a way, I don't know if this was intentional of um, the filmmakers or not, to kind of show that, yeah, like she stabbed him in the crotch area to kind of like as anger for basically for sex and stuff like that by stabbing a by stabbing a bill there i have no doubt i hadn't noticed that actually i hadn't noticed the placement i focus on the i focus on the one through the eye man that's a nasty effect that is just a nasty effect and that 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 is that's probably it you know she went you know she went freudian on him Mm. although i gotta say though and again similar to kevin bacon's uh (laughs) death with the uh with the arrow how are those arrows holding Bill up on the door? How do you do that? How do you place him? Like, did she stab him with the first one and then stand back? Yeah, exactly. Like, what's the uh, uh, the physics involved there well, to get I, a guy I, up? Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. I have to think, like, what was the killing blow? Because I'm assuming <laughs> she did this, didn't do that and then put, like, put him up there and then do that to him. I'm assuming she probably killed him first with the arrow to the eye because, you know, would have hit him in the brain and killed right. him. And then, of course, as we would see later on, she kind of starts a trend that will be a big thing in this franchise by placing bodies at certain oh, places God. around. <laughs> so so obviously she put him up there and used the other arrows to hold him up. But again, it's another subversion. So when we see uh, Mrs. Voorhees come in at the end, like I can imagine audiences at the time probably wouldn't suspect her at first because like she doesn't seem like the type of woman who would have the strength to lift somebody up right. and arrow uh, use arrows to <laughs> nail them up against the door you mentioned placing the bodies man that is something that just cracks me up in every one of these movies you know you've got uh, okay so we 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 place the first she places the um axe that killed marcy in marcy's bed Okay, mm. little little teaser there, but it's the psychology of this, like how the 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 killer has to assume that they would go and check for Marcy mm. in her cabin, right? Okay, great. I'm gonna cut the power. Somebody's gonna come and and look for the generator, and then yeah. they'll find Bill, right? But Steve Christie literally falls out of a tree, like he, he was he was on a time release at some point because mm. he just his body unfolds. Um, you'd have to be so upset if you were the killer and you set up these elaborate body reveals and like the person you're chasing just goes the other way. Like there would be such a time waster. There's, there's in, um, is it part two? I think Jason sort of keeps everybody in one room and I dig that. I, I appreciate that. That's a, that's a lot, you know, that's time saving, you know, he's just, okay, (laughs) this is where they go. But, um, at the, at the same time, Mrs. Voorhees didn't do anything with Annie. She just left her in the Jeep. <laughs> what? But I, now I'm just having the visual of Mrs. Voorhees going around the camp and placing all these bodies <laughs> everywhere, particularly Steve's, putting him up the tree as all this is happening. And I'm just seeing the visual of that. And don't, don't ask me why. I just find it hilarious for Dude, some she's reason. She's having a great time. She's she's like oh this is going to be great this is going to be so good she's going to she's going to run out of the the generator she's going to find him and then you know who knows why but she'll run down this path and that's when that's when we'll release steve that'll be be sweet this will be so good you almost want to see the see the outtakes of that you want to see the other side of that that setup because it really is (laughs) hilarious definitely definitely actually we i need to go back 
a step to the very beginning of this film with the opening scene back in 1958 uh, with the two very first camp counselors who were killed, who we assume are the two camp counselors who accidentally let Jason die. Or at least other, or, or maybe. That, that was my take. But now that I think about it now, I'm second guessing this. They're probably two other separate couple that had nothing to do with that, but she just killed them anyway because it's, you know, two camp counselors making love when they should be paying attention to That's it. The that kids. was my take, honestly. Yeah, that was my it didn't mm-hmm. matter who they were. They were camp counselors. They they were, you know, getting getting randy. They had to die. Exactly. But uh, sort of to bring up your point earlier in the episode about the urban legend behind this scene. Oh yeah. Now with uh it's Claudette who's the uh the young girl. I I have to say her death face when the movie kind of freeze frames on her and then goes into the title card. Every time I see this film, that face haunts me. It is a very haunting image. And I think what you're about to say now, like I thought, okay, that's how it kind of ends. But then I was reading, it might've been like an issue of Fangoria years ago. And they actually showed Claudette with a machete in her throat. Now, I just assumed that also there was more to her death in the film that we didn't see, but apparently that might not be the case because I think they, Tom Savini is pretty, and a few others have said that, oh, that was more like a practice makeup test more than anything rather than an actual scene from the film. Yeah, I think it exists only as a, only as a still. Um, Mm. Because I, I know what you're talking about. I did find a I found an article online about that as well, uh, uh, talking. You know, I think and uh, Savini and Cunningham both said, yeah, no, we didn't we didn't shoot that. We didn't shoot mm. it. So anyone uh, who's remembering it being shot, and there there are several uh, mm. crew members who remember it being shot, they're misremembering the the makeup test. But it looks pretty grim, and it's it's um, I w- Mrs. Voorhees at that point we don't know do we ever see Barry get stabbed we we see the repercussions we see him fall uh, yeah and he's he's bloody I just assumed that there was a a knife but this this is the establishing uh machete kill yeah exactly and I, I, honestly the first time I watched it I thought oh the killer just punched him in the stomach until you saw the <laughs> next shot with him holding his stomach and there's blood everywhere <laughs> So <laughs> the way how it's sort of framed was very funny in that sort of regard. But another thing too, I love the cinematography of this film. I really, again, when I was talking about the naturalistic vibe of the film with the performances and the writing, I would even say the cinematography from Barry Abrams kind of also adds to that yeah, as well. Because the way how it's shot there, it's very simple, but it feels... Again, I'm going to keep using this word a lot. It feels very naturalistic. It doesn't feel stylized. It feels very simple. I would say it's on the same as Dean Cundy's work on the first Halloween film, Mm -hmm. but it has a different kind of subtlety to it compared to Dean Cundy's. I mean, Dean Cundy's work on Halloween is amazing, and it's to me it's the benchmark when it comes to cinematography in horror films, like one of the benchmarks. But I think Barry Abrams kind of has this kind of a similar approach to it, but a bit more grounded and less. But also it does have offer a lot of atmospheres, especially since most of the film takes place at night during a storm as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what I noticed. You brought, you know, bringing that up. Um, 
obviously the the POV shots with the famous sound effect, right? are obviously the the killer but when he uses a pov shot without the sound effect it's really off-putting like it really really sort of sets you on edge you're like okay who's watching is someone watching you know Mm. and the rest of that sort of naturalistic uh camera motion it it just follows through it's you don't know wait is this a pov or is this just a you know, a handheld at this point and you don't know. And it, it sets you, it sort of sets you on edge uh, for the whole movie because you, you really don't know where the killer is at any, at any point in time due to that um, naturalistic um, camera work that you're talking about. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I think that's one of the things that again, makes it stand out from the rest of the films in the series but also kind of what makes it different from Halloween. So even though, yes, we were, jo- I was, joking about it but in the end it is its own thing but i think another thing too that i definitely want to talk about in regards to the film is like the town locals that we see at the beginning of the film and also the other characters all of them are very memorable particularly uh enos who is the uh the truck driver who drives annie halfway to uh camp crystal lake he's the actor who plays him and i'm gonna look rex everhart he is great in these few scenes that he's in and I like the fact that, yeah, like all, like Annie and a few others are kind of, everyone kind of warns them about Camp Blood. And I'm going to say this right now, Crazy Ralph wasn't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he was not wrong. That's that's the irony. I love this. And when you meet uh, Crazy Ralph, played by the great Walt Groening, he is, like, again, he only has a small role in this film, but he has left a lasting impression on this franchise. And I don't know if he was like the original soothsayer in all in horror films, but I think when people think of soothsayers in horror, this is this is who they think of is Crazy Ralph. Absolutely, he's the, he's the quintessential um, herald, you know, and he deserved better. Crazy Ralph deserved better in the second movie, man. Just it just makes me sad. His I I love him riding off on on his bicycle. <laughs> after after he meets Annie, he just gets on, and he's so straight backed. He's just, you know, just riding off like a leisurely Saturday or something. Um, it's fantastic. It's so good. He's I, um, he definitely. I I want I want some more backstory mm. on, on, well, on Crazy Ralph. Well, the thing I noticed, like in this um, recent viewing, is that Crazy Ralph is actually married. <laughs> yes. He ha- his wife has been his wife has been concerned all day. Yeah. <laughs> but I think um talking about the bike, every time he gets on that bike, it just makes me laugh for some reason. He just like does his own, you're doomed, they're all doomed. And then he just gets on his bike and rides away. Although I gotta say though, when he was at uh at the camp and does that whole little jump scare with uh with Alice coming out of the pantry, I'm just sort of sitting there because he how did anyone not notice his bike was there? <laughs> because yeah. <it> was so... <laughs> That's true. Did he, he's he's certainly not. Uh, uh, he didn't have the foresight to like park it at the edge of the camp and then and then walk in, did he? No, no. no. Like he was literally in the camp <laughs> with the bike near where the main kitchen and everything is. Like, how did anyone notice? Like walking past, like whose bike is that? <laughs> no. <laughs> don't tug at these threads man yeah i know, I, I, know. I, I agree absolutely absolutely and then he's just i love too that he was just standing in the pantry 
messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. Cursed. It's got a death curse. Who are you? What do you want? God sent me. Get out of here, man. I got to warn you. You're doomed to stay. Go. Go. I think we just met Ralph. God, what's next? Just waiting. Just waiting. He's like, they're gonna open this door and they're gonna find me. And then I'm, he's not even. It's not even. He's not even thinking. I'm gonna jump out and say boo or anything. He's just gonna deliver his sermon. Like, exactly. could you not have just walked into, <laughs> into yeah. the camp? Well, no. that's the thing. It would be awkward if he's waiting for someone to open that door and nobody <laughs> ends up opening that door. He's just gonna be in there all night, <laughs> waiting for someone to come in and open it up. Although I gotta say though, another thing I like <laughs> about this film, again going back to the naturalistic vibe of the film, is short as Cunningham really lets scenes linger on for a while. Like it's like yeah. particularly the scene where um when Alice wakes up when she's on the couch, Bill goes off to turn on the generator. We don't know how long she's been asleep for. So this is probably around the time when Mrs. Voris has gone around all the camp and <laughs> put all the bodies up everywhere. While she she's going in the in the kitchen and making a cup of coffee, that scene goes on for quite a while. And we just fought, and she's just doing yeah. very mundane stuff. And then and I believe that's when she goes near the window, and that's when Brenda's body gets thrown through the window. Again, yeah. it's kind of setting like there's no real tense music in this scene. So you're just thinking, oh, she's just making a cup of coffee. There's thunder and lightning happening in the background and then when she goes near the window it kind of does something similar to the very first resident evil game when the dogs come in through the window <laughs> when you least expect it you see brenda just going smashing right through the window so <laughs> oh, which I, in the documentary that was actually tom savini dressed up as that, brenda, oh, doing yeah. the stunt doing the stunt in that scene you know, I was trying to remember last night when I'm watching um, uh, Mrs. Voorhees gets decapitated and the hands that, that come up into frame. Mm. Uh, I can't remember if that's Savini or Tasso. The I, I think it might have been Tasso because I think Tasso. he did say his assistant was. But that's the thing, though. Ever since I watched that film, not just that scene, but even when Annie gets killed, I'm not going to unsee those scenes because if you look at them so closely, you can tell that, they, that the knuckles and everything are very hairy. Those are hands. They're man, man hands. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could have easily shaved off those hands just for those scenes. But I digress. But also an interesting... We'll get to the ending of the, of the film very soon. Kind of just looking over my notes because to see uh, what other aspects of this film I wanted to talk about. This also, too, because, again, this is something I've seen every time in the film, but I was really even more kind of caught off by this scene is probably one of the most controversial scenes in the film. 
And that, of course, is the death of the snake because that was a real snake. That yeah. was not a fake one that they killed in the movie. Yeah, man. I noticed there was no um, no no tag at the end that said no animals were harmed in the making of this film. That was mm. that was that was harsh. Yeah, like it definitely. Uh, they didn't have to kill us. I mean, I I don't like snakes personally because they freak me out, and I'm cut. And I have a bit of a phobia of them. But that being said, though, you didn't have to kill a real snake in that scene. No, no, not not at all, not at all. We didn't we didn't need that. And I, I feel I feel weird about that because it's like you know it's a slasher movie, and mm. you know we're here uh, you know praising it left, right, and center, uh, talking about the great effects and stuff like that. And then we're getting mm. we 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 get a little like over a over a snake. But I'm not mm. I'm not big on not big on animal cruelty. Mm. And, that, you know. and, and that's the thing, though. It's like, uh, I can imagine in 1980, <laughs> people saw this film. It's like, this movie has the most t- controversial animal death scene you'll see in the movies <laughs> this year. And then Cannibal Holocaust comes on. It's like, hold my beer. <laughs> it, oh, man, it opened the door for Cannibal Holocaust. That's not... <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> that's not good. You don't want that. But I do. I will admit, though, I did laugh when Ned, after when that scene happened, Ned says, "Oh, well, at least we have dinner tonight." <laughs> I like Ned. I kind of too hard on Ned because there are moments where I did find them a little annoying, especially it's like, "Dude, Brenda's totally not into you. Get off her back." <laughs> maybe, maybe. Or she doesn't like the teasing. I would say. <laughs> yeah, Ned was Ned was a problem. Ned was, you know, he. <laughs> I don't know what kind of flirting he's used to, but shooting arrows at a girl on, yes. um, you know, that, that, well, that was maybe a bit, that was maybe a bit much, but yeah, he was, he was uh, all over Brenda and you see when um, just before it's uh, it, it's about halfway through, it's just before it's revealed that, um, you know, he's dead. He sees, he sees Jack and Marcy and they're sort of, you know, off in the distance getting close and he turns mm. around. He's just like, you know, just gives a deep sigh and walks away. He's a sad character. But that's one of the things I wanted to to say about this movie is this was in the this was in the days before horror heroes, back when mm. you didn't want to see the get kids get killed in nasty ways yet. Yeah. You know, they were still they were still allowed to be likable. And mm. in the script, as when we meet uh Ned, Jack, and Marcy as they're driving. It actually says right in the script, they are instantly likable. And I, mm. I think that's cool. I think that he puts that in specifically. Ned is um, meant to have had polio when he was a kid, this really strong upper body and mm. um, sort of spindly, uh, spindly legs. So that's, that's one of those things that sort of, I'm not, sure would, I'm not sure how that would play now, but I think that carried over into part two. Right? Yeah, definitely. The, the character there and um like so ned ned's a clown hmm. he's in the indian headdress which again wow ned you know ned would not fly today <laughs> <laughs> nothing about ned would fly today uh but i don't feel like he was a dick he's he's your trickster character he's your comic hmm. relief he's he's the great Stu charno in part two you know, mm. he's he's just there to release some release some tension. Um, but I didn't I didn't mind Ned. I really liked Jack and Marcy. Uh, I think all mm. these kids had. Um, I mean, it's it's it's, you know, 
it's not like depth of character. I don't want to. I don't want to say that. But Marcy was always doing um, impersonate film impersonations and, mm -hmm. and film quotes and things like that. You you get the idea that Jack is. Um, uh, I don't know. Is he a track and field star in high school or something? Like there, there's that athletic thing he's got going mm. for him. He's gonna he's gonna go off and be a you know be a personal trainer or or something. You get this just from the just from the way they interact with with each other. And I think it's great that later on. And and I think specifically of um, I always think of the Nightmare on Elm Street series and the set piece deaths. You know, mm. the girl who's afraid of cockroaches and her death, you know, she dreams that she's in one of those roach motels and becomes a, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like, well, you don't necessarily want to see her killed. As soon as they plant that seed that she's afraid of bugs, you're like, oh, this is going to be cool. And you mm. don't necessarily want that. We don't want these kids to die. We actually want to see them survive we know they're not going to and that's what should make it sad when the um killer becomes the hero of the piece as it would in a couple of movies uh um for the friday the 13th series you can you can really skimp on character uh and i'm thinking mm. of part three immediately mm. uh we just don't know who these people are and we don't care because mm. we at a certain point we just want to see them taken down by yeah. jason yeah, and it's kind of interesting what you say that because I think if the killer aspect wasn't in this film, this film could easily just be a hangout film with all these characters because we find them so likable through their interactions through each other. And they all have great chemistry. And I think that's a great thing about this film is that all the cast are all really good in their roles and they're likable through their interactions with each other and how they treat each other. Yeah, that is annoying. But like you say, he's kind of the clown and trickster of the group. Yeah. And compared to like sort of where, you know, the series would go from here with its other character, with its characters and all that, like they would become more uh, death fodder for Jason more yeah. than actual characters. And I think it's interesting kind of reading some of the criticisms of this film at the time who kind of felt like these characters are just stock characters there there's nothing interesting about them but i think like yeah maybe on paper there's not that much development on all of them but i think through the interactions of the characters mm -hmm. and their performances i you do get a sense of who these characters are and what they want to be where they want to go from here and also just how likable they are as well and i think also too i now that i'd sort of remember this um Back to Bill's death, which we talked about before. Actually, now that I remember, he also had his throat slit as well. There's actually oh. a lot of throat slits in this movie. <laughs> there are a lot of throat slits, but that's like that's like overkill for Bill, man. Yeah, I mean, he had the throat slit, he had the, the arrow in the eye, the arrow in the crotch. So I don't know which came first, but I can man. definitely t tell, like, Bill did not have the best time in this movie. And again... I can't remember if that's before or after we reveal that Steve was at the diner. I think Damn. that was after. I think it was after, yeah. Okay, because had that come before, that would be another uh, sort of tick in the box for Steve is the killer. Mm. You know, taking everything out on Bill with the romantic angle of Bill and Alice. Mm. Ah, missed opportunity, man. I, I want to um, – <laughs> you mentioned um, 
if the killer aspect was not brought into this movie, like, and you've got me thinking that there's a, there's a sliding doors version of Friday the 13th where it's like, you know, there's no killer and it's just, it's like meatballs. Hmm. Or even just like a a Richard Linklater film in terms of just at set at a summer camp. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, what was that? Um, Indian summer. Oh yeah. yeah, That's right. Yeah, Yeah, I do. Yes. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see what, you know, what did the, what happened with these kids? Because crazy Ralph um, uh, wouldn't even be a factor, mm. you know, it would be, it'd be one of those feel good summer camp movies. Oh God. I'm, I'm exactly. I, no, I'm glad. I'm glad. This, I'm glad Jason drowned. Indeed. indeed. I'm glad it went the way it did. I have, um, <laughs> I have uh, one more thing I, I wanted to bring up. I mentioned psycho earlier beat. Mm. Um, and it, it was when, when it's revealed that Mrs. Voorhees is just completely and totally insane when mm. she starts doing the Jason voice. Yeah. Um, I was reminded again of Norman Bates mm. doing the mother voice. So you've got the sort of reverse psycho element here. Mm. Um, Norman keeping his mother alive and, and Pamela keeping uh, uh, Jason alive. And I had, I don't know if you if you picked up on this, but I had been feeling psycho all the way through with with Harry Manfredini's score. Actually, you know what? Now that it's funny that you say that, I noticed that even more so this time around with okay. the score. Like it because def- I mean it Harry Manfredini's score legendary because of the ch 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 kind of aspect of the score. But with the other aspects of the score, like it kind of sounds in some areas, very similar to the opening score of the film. I mean, not an outright copy of, say, Reanimator's score. No, not, not, is... not like Reanimator. Not... <laughs> but definitely I did write down in my notes, like, oh, the score to this film definitely has a Bernard Herrmann vibe to it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, I don't know, this has probably been been talked about before by by other people, but this was the first time that I really noticed it because I was trying to look at it um, outside of, well, ironically, I guess, outside of pop culture, and just look at it as its own as its own thing in a vacuum. Like I said, and this this popped out to me. This stood out more so, I think, mm. because I was looking at it looking at it that way. This yeah, has been, definitely. and you would have seen this in the in the documentaries. Um, yeah, they did bring that. I don't think they brought up the score, but they did bring up. I think it was Victor Miller who brought up the same kind of reverse. Uh, Norman Bates, Mrs. Bates, okay. kind of comparison. Okay, so it's a... I didn't, I didn't remember that. Um, I've seen, I, I don't know that I've seen Crystal Lake, um, Crystal Lake Memories. I've seen featurettes and things like that where uh, Victor Miller talks about Mrs. Voorhees is the mother he wished he'd had. Mm. Like you, you know, uh, I don't know what I don't know what the story is, you know, with with him and his mother, but apparently, um, she was not, um let's say supportive mm. and and yeah this was this was the ideal mother for him and that that sort of takes me back to to psycho there as well where mm. obviously norma bates uh uh in life was not the ideal mother but mother as created by norman was the mother he needed mm. uh which i think is one of the one of the great things about that about that movie is that even though she's she's the villain she gets him 
she gives him support. She supports him uh, in mm. in not a great way. But this is what this is what we're doing with with Jason and and Mrs. Voorhees as well. She she has Jason urging her on to do what she needs to do, but couldn't do on her own. Mm, definitely, definitely. And I definitely want to talk about Mrs. Voorhees in a sec, because I feel like we need to discuss her. And, I feel like we and... haven't really talked much about her at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, two things before we do get to her, and because we can do Mrs. Voorhees and the ending after this, is it just me? And I noticed this even the first time I watched this film. Is it just me, or does Adrian King look so much like Ad- Alison Hannigan? Oh, wow. I don't think I'd ever notice that. But now that you say it, I can see that the the shot of her looking at the the cop at the end. What about the boy? Right there. That's where I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I honestly, the first time I saw this <laughs> film, I honestly, I was so transfixed on how much she looked like Alison Hannigan. I honestly thought, oh, maybe she's related to Alison Hannigan. Maybe it's her <laughs> mother. And then I looked up, oh, no, they're two completely different actresses. But I'm like, wow, like the similarities between the two of them is so creepy. Oh, that's great. Like, and uh, number the second last thing I want to talk about before we get into Mrs. Voorhees and the ending of the film, uh, we got to talk about this, uh, the strip Monopoly scene, which is also a very <laughs> memorable highlight of this film. And I love the sort of the interactions that are going on in this scene. Because I think what's interesting, though, because Brenda as a character, like Brenda... Like, if this was, like, later on in the series, she would be portrayed as the quote-unquote stuck-up bitch character, but she's definitely not, even though she could have easily have been that kind of character in this film, but she's very likable, and she it was her suggestion to do the Strip Monopoly yeah. game. But I have one issue with this scene. I've never noticed this before. <laughs> All right. So when they're talking about, because basically there's a moment in the game where um I think it's... uh. Alice, yes, Alice. Uh, she says, "Oh, I'm gonna roll the dice, and if you and if you land on, uh, I think it's a Belvic Alve- Avenue or Baltic, one of the yeah, Baltic, Baltic Avenue. Avenue, Baltic Avenue, and it's like if you get on that, you're gonna have to strip for me. Like she's like, see, she she says she's uh, I think it was like snake way from Baltic <laughs> Avenue. You're counting the spaces, aren't you? No, I'm counting the <laughs> dice. When she rolled that dice." She didn't roll an eight. She rolled a 10. <laughs> I noticed this. She cheated. Alice cheated oh, in this game. <laughs> to get Bill to strip down. See, this, yes. goes to my, this goes to my romance between the two theory. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> she was very, she was like, Baltic Avenue. <laughs> He's like, nobody ever lands on Baltic Avenue. <laughs> exactly. She, she loaded the dice. See, like, I could... Like, I guess in the movies that world, like, she probably did roll an eight, and they probably, I don't know how many takes they did of this scene, they probably rolled as many times with the <laughs> dice to get it onto an eight, but they probably just, like, will land on the closest number. But when I looked at that dice very closely, that was a ten, that was not an eight. <laughs> oh, man. See, Steve, this is the thing you're going to have to notice when we do this show All together. Right. I'm going to notice these things. <laughs> There's a level of detail we can depend on from you, Beat. I love this. Exactly, exactly. Excellent. But um, we'll we'll get to the the two big final parts of uh, our discussion on the first film. We also have to talk about the main villain of this film, which of course is Mrs. Pamela Voorhees, played by Betsy Palmer, which is an incredible iconic performance. Before she even got the role, 
I believe, uh, who was it who was considered for the part? Oh, uh, Estelle Parsons. Oscar winner Estelle Parsons was initially asked to play the role. But I've heard different things. Either she turned it down or she wasn't available, so she couldn't do it. And I've heard, like, this is from Wikipedia, by the way, but also from the Crystal Lake Memory Zocco as well. Uh, It says here in the Wikipedia page, they also went after Shirley Winters, but she turned it down. So I can imagine, I'm now imagining Shelly Winters in this role. Picture Shelly Winters. Oh, man. And she would have been amazing. But Betsy Palmer, she did admit, has admitted, like, she, when she read the script to the first time, and I quote, she thought the script was a piece of shit. And (laughs) she only really did the films that so she could buy a car. But, because she definitely is a method actress, because she went from that type of school of method acting. And she goes into this role with Pamela. And I think what's also great too is that she developed an entire backstory for Pamela. And I've sort of read a little bit online where it basically she sort of describes Pamela as someone who was a sort of a as a young woman, she goes on a date with a guy, she gets pregnant, he breaks up with her, and she's from a conservative family background who who don't believe in having children out of wedlock. And so she basically is shunned from a family. So she has the baby instead of like giving up to her adoption she decides to keep it and that's her relationship with jason and of course the only fit and when jason is killed that is the thing that sends spirals her down this hole of madness and murder because the one thing that she loved was taken from her it doesn't surprise me at all like when you kind of look years later and even like uh well, I think what's also great, because you, when you see Betsy Palmer, who's no longer with us anymore, like yeah. in old interviews about the film, she's definitely embraced the character of Mrs. Voorhees. And she always talks about how, like, she always asks, like, fans, like, what is it about this character you guys find appealing? Like, I mean, she's murders, she murdered these people and all that. But I think it's because, like, she's a mother and who, what kind of mother wouldn't want to do something for their child, especially... Yeah. Like, I, you could argue whether, and we'll get to a little segment that we've created for this podcast later in the episode, but, like, yeah, I don't approve of <laughs> Mrs. Voorhees killing innocent people who had nothing to do with the, her son's Jason's drowning, <laughs> but I can definitely understand why she would do it. Let's be clear. We don't condone it. Yeah, we, we don't, don't condone, condone it. it. But we get but it. We, we get it. it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But... But Steve, you're, I mean, what are your thoughts on Betsy Palmer's performance in this film? Oh, I, she's just incredible. She was the, um, uh, just the end-all be-all. Because at that point, and this goes back to like the proto-slashers as well. Mm. And somebody's going to pull me up on this and they're going to say, well, no, this other movie. But I'm like, you know, generally being a slasher is it's a male dominated field mm. you know um every everyone in the sawyer family all the chainsaws you know i mean yes there was grandma i know somebody's gonna somebody's gonna make a note about that yes but she was dead in the movie michael myers you know you've got all of this this long even uh peeping tom you know um we're talking about the proto slashers peeping tom so can it be said that mother was the slasher no because norman created mother so that's what's Mm. happening there this was this was the first at least for me the first big female 
uh, horror hero, I guess, if, if we want to use that, use that term, um, that I, that I was familiar with as a kid. Cause like I, I told you, I was watching, we had a show called, um, Creature Double Feature on Saturday mornings and I'd watch Creature Double Feature. Um, I think Dr. Shock was our Philadelphia based horror host and he, you know, I think he was on Sundays. Uh, so I was watching, I was watching horror movies for like a long time when I was in my, in my single digits, but this one, this sticks out to me. She is, and I do love that, you know, as you pointed out, she's, she's a mother who says, no, this, no, no, they never caught the people who, um, they say they never caught, obviously they never caught the, the, they never caught Mrs. Voorhees for killing, um, Barry and Claudette, but we don't really know who was off, you know, having sex while Jason drowned. Like, mm. so there is, there is this, um, if she knew who that was, perhaps she she could have had her revenge and everything would have been everything would have been settled. But she's got this um, this insatiable drive, literally insatiable drive to just kill all camp counselors. Hmm. Um, and like I I dig that, man. I dig that. She's she's committed to the premise. Hmm. I, I will say this and I'm thinking about this right now. Pamela Voorhees is Charles Bronson in this film. Oh, dude. She is, well, because now Sarah hearing about that and hearing, like, she's basically killing, she doesn't know who let her son die. She's just killing anyone for the sake of it. So it's kind of similar to how Charles Bronson's character of Paul Kersey was in the first Death Wish film. Death because Wish. Yeah, because, like, <laughs> we know who attacked, raped, and killed his wife and did the same, well, didn't kill his daughter, but he wasn't there when it happened. So he goes on a rampage, kills any criminal he comes across, at least in the first film. It's a bit different in the sequels, but yeah. yeah. And you think, oh, at some point he's going to have a run in with the actual criminals, but spoilers for that film, he never does. No, no. It's Jeff Goldblum, by the way, which I always yeah, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Really bizarre. <laughs> but it's kind of a similar thing. Like yeah. she's just yeah. killing. Every, just anyone who comes in her path who she thinks might have been it because in her madness and to an extent Jason would do the same in the later films like well in a way Jason well we'll get to this in part two <laughs> yeah I was like how far do we want to <laughs> yeah we, we'll get to this later on because I feel like it's a little bit different between Jason and and, and Pamela but yeah like you could totally get like again I don't approve of <laughs> Mrs. Voorhees killing people gonna, who had nothing to do with her son's drowning. I have to put a trigger warning on this one, man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But but yeah, like Miss Betsy Palmer is great in this film, and I I find it a bit bullshit that the Razzies nominated for worst supporting no, actress. That is, there's no call for that. There's no yeah. Call for, well, look honestly, there's no call for Razzies. Yeah, uh, to begin with, I just think that's awful. That's rude. But um, now she's fantastic, and she was like America's sweetheart, wasn't she? Mm. Like a news girl or a weather girl? Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. I think because she had this nice girl's persona throughout her career, when she did this film, that kind of changed everything. She basically was like John Jarrett for us Aussies, being <laughs> in Wolf Creek. <laughs> So <laughs> I think it's essentially the same thing, but it's a great performance because again, when you first meet her for the first time, she's so nice and loving and warm 
and but then the cracks start to slowly appear and then you find out about what happened to Jason and then of course she reveals herself to be the killer and then of course like during these moments where she takes on Jason's persona with the very creepy like killer Bobby killer oh that voice yeah and I always wonder if like is that her actual voice doing that or is it like a voiceover I I, I keep I need to find out because I because I didn't get a chance to look that part up but regardless though whether it's a voiceover or actual voice it is creepy when she does that voice of Jason it is it's good it's really good it's the same it's the same voice that um gets Brenda to go out Mm. too it's like help me help me and she's using that that child voice Mm. again that's also creepy too with Brenda because again there's no score or anything in that scene it's just the sound effects of the of the rain and the lightning and the thunder and and she just hear this child voice like help me help me like we don't really see that kind of stuff again in the rest of the series not to say that's a bad thing but you could definitely tell like they are actually legit trying to do actual scares in this film yeah yeah i found i always found it weird though and let me again this goes back to just bringing mrs Voorhees into the third act all of a sudden why does she suddenly change up her mo (laughs) <laughs> like she's just you know she's slaughtering people left right and center you know um, marcy gets an axe to the face jack doesn't even know what the hell's going on he's stabbed from under the bed you know hmm. uh, uh we don't know what happened to ned but you know and then we don't okay we don't know that she didn't introduce herself to bill we don't know yeah. that but hmm. i'm gonna just assume she didn't okay and then yeah. she introduces herself to um she introduces herself to Alice, and this made me laugh last night, and it 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 should not have. But she introduces herself to Alice, and Alice is like, they're dead, they're dead. And she's telling her, no, no, no I, can't, I can't understand you. You're hysterical. Slow down, right? And um, Alice is like, no, they killed them, uh, Bill and, and Brenda, and they're, they're dead. And Mrs. Voorhees is playing it off like, oh, that's okay. I, you know, let me go check it out. And she goes, no, they'll kill you too. Mrs. Voorhees laughs at her and goes, oh, I'm not scared. And I remember, you know, being a kid watching this with uh, my friend Vince. So I mentioned before Vince going, no, of course we knew she was the, she knew she was the killer, but um, we follow Mrs. Voorhees into the house and she goes, oh, so, so young, so beautiful. And then she sort of outs herself in that she Mm. triggered herself she triggered herself into a confession it's Mm. so it's so bizarre it's such a bizarrely written scene because she she plays it off like she's not the killer and Mm. then goes in and sees the dead body and is triggered into revealing that she's the killer it's um i don't know if I don't know what that says about her psychosis, but it's, yeah. it's really odd. It's really, really bizarre. But she, you know, she introduces herself to to Alice where she could just easily have stabbed Alice like she did Steve and been done with it. You know, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure she was regretting that for the next, you know, 30 minutes as she chased her around the chased her around the woods. But Alice, Alice deserves some kind of special award for clumsiness too she (laughs) she knocks mrs voorhees out three times and never once does she tie her up never once does she you know put something heavy on her so she cannot escape she hits her with the the uh fireplace poker first and then um 
I can't remember the I can't remember the events, but it's it, it, does she knock her out in the kitchen as well? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's like there's this third time, and I'm like, never. You're never. It, it's in the um in the storage shed where uh, with no. the mattresses where she bangs her in that. Like, t- dude, you're in the storage shed. Tie her up. Tie her up. <laughs> this could have all ended very differently for everyone. Um, but you know, yeah, Alice, I think was um uh maybe. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to say. I don't want to say. I. I, I think maybe it was just uh, panic. Let's yeah, just go yeah. with that. Let's go with that. But after the third time, dude. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason <laughs> watched every minute. He was. He wasn't a very good swimmer. We can go now, dear. I think we should wait for Mr. Christie. Oh, <laughs> that's not necessary. I don't understand. Jason. You see, Jason was my son, and today is his birthday. Where's Mr. Christie? Oh, I couldn't let them open this place again. Could I? Not after what happened. Oh, my sweet, innocent Jason. My only child. Jason. You let him drown. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Look what you did to him. Definitely, definitely. Although I got to ask you this because I was wondering this while I was watching the film and I want to hear your uh, perspective on it. Now, we know that Pamela shows up at the end of the film. She's a character we're not introduced at all in the prior events of the film. And we're just introduced to her for the first time in the scene. And then a few minutes later, we find out it's the killer. But I was sort of wondering this. Do you think her appearance would have been, or at least her reveal build being the killer would have been more effective if we were introduced to her a lot earlier in the film, even if it was like a short little scene. I do. I absolutely do. I absolutely do. That's the, that's the 10 little Indians thing I was talking about. That's, you know, you, you give us, give us all of the red herrings, even if you're not setting her up as a red herring. I I always think this about, um, do you know the movie, the, the, um, the Denzel movie, the bone collector? Ah, yes. Yes. You ever see this? Okay. Now this is, this is done in such a way he has a, he has a, uh, a nurse come in, a technician come in, uh, helping him out because uh, his character is is in um, is is paralyzed. Okay. Yeah. So and and he's played by Leland Orser. Yeah. Uh, the great Leland Orser. Now, 
at the time, I don't know anybody knew who Leland Orzer was. I knew him from seven. And I've mm. got I've got like uh, this is this is part of my autism where I'm like, I see someone and like I know them forever. Like I'm watching yeah. movies with people. I'm like, oh, that was the guy at the bar in this episode of, you know, uh, Twilight Zone back in there. Like, how do you know that? And like, I don't know. It's I have a thing for faces. So Leland Orser, who was the lust not yeah. the victim, but the guy who was involved in lust in Seven, yeah. he plays the the nurse. And I'm like, right away, looking at him going, he's the killer. He's mm. absolutely got to be the killer because he's Leland Orser. And yeah. you don't just get this guy in to do nothing, to, to you know, to, to be a background, to be a featured mm. extra. Okay. Mm. So you knew he was going to come into play. I, I think having Estelle Parsons... Shelly Winters, anyone like that, if you introduce them early in the movie, you know they're coming back. I'm not sure that would have been the case with Betsy, Betsy Palmer. I hmm. think we could have seen her at some stage. Now, again, that now we get into rewriting because she could not have been sitting at the diner because everyone in town would have known she was the poor woman who lost her son all those years ago. And there would have been, you know, there would have been something around that. But I do think that... Um, introducing her and not playing her as a red herring right yeah. because you're already creating these other red herrings that would have been yet another way to subvert the genre i think that could have been really cool what what were you thinking on that yeah i was thinking the kind of the same as well like you know because you if they did cast estelle parsons or shelly winters in this role who are both oscar-winning actors in this film like yeah people would have like oh yeah they're well-known names you can't just have them appear earlier in the film then not have them back later on because you'll have to, oh, they have to come back at some point. But you're right, though, with Betsy Palmer. Like, even though, yes, she started a lot of films and TV shows, mm -hmm. but she definitely wasn't, in terms of her fame, maybe not on the level of those two. So I think if they kind of had her appear in the film early on, whether it is at the diner where Annie comes in or maybe she was a waitress or owned the bar or even um oh. she was like at the, uh, the 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 other diner where we saw Steve at later mm -hmm. then maybe that would have been more effective to introduce that character in a quick little scene and then bring her back and then you could easily rewrite something like oh she's there to bring supplies or food yeah. or as something in, as, a, um, as yeah. in psycho 2 sorry to interrupt you there but the, as in psycho 2 and what they mm. did there it was uh, one of the women who was working with Norman at mm. the diner, uh, mm. who turned out to be like his his real mother, but then later not his they, real mother. It was yeah, they kind of retconned that for the first yeah, they, they really did. They really did. But she was there, and she was a presence, but mm. she didn't feel like she was going to be, you know, involved in any of this. I think that would have been that would have been interesting, and that would have that would have been that one that one little thing that would have been the one element that that shifted this to more of a 10 little Indians type, you know, thriller rather than her just showing up at the end. Because, it, because again, as soon as she shows up at the end, you know, she, you know, she's not going to be the, the Dick Halloran character. Uh, that's Steve uh, Christie. Steve, Steve Christie basically is Dick Halloran. He, he, I was he, actually he, thinking <laughs> that too. See, this is why you're the perfect co-host, Steve, because you and I are way too in sync when it comes to I know. this type of stuff. It's ridiculous. He shows up at the end. He does He does nothing. Now, to be fair, Dick does draw Jack's attention away, lets Wendy escape from the, the you know, the bathroom, blah, blah, blah. But 
you know, Steve just comes back and does nothing. You know that this 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 woman who just shows up out of the blue isn't going to be killed like a minute later because we have no investment in her, mm. no investment. So she's got to be the killer. And yeah. I, I, I think if we had seen her in the beginning, as you said, we would have gone, oh, her. Now, we might have had an inkling. We might have gone, oh, hang on. Is she possibly the killer? But at least there would have been some doubt. When she shows up here, even watching it in a vacuum, you know, game's over. Game's over mm. at that point. Definitely, definitely. And also, she goes out in a spectacular way with a great decapitation. <gasps> I have to say, because they used a real machete to cut off the head. And yeah. if you slow down the film, because I noticed, I didn't notice this until I rewatched the documentary last night, because Tom Tavini did say that how they, they put the head on top of his assistant, <laughs> who's <laughs> underneath, and... Basically, they held the head on the neck with um with uh, toothpicks. Toothpicks. And if you look very closely, when the head's cut up, you can still see some of the toothpicks sticking out from the throat area. Did you freeze frame it? No, I just sort of. Well, it's hard not to notice when the whole scene is done in slow motion, <laughs> and you see hairy knuckles and all. <laughs> let's let's talk just um before we because we've been going for quite a while. Let's talk about that carry ending. Yes, I wanted to bring this up. This could be the perfect way to kind of end our discussion on the film before we go into our little segment. So your thoughts on the ending, Steve? I kind of feel like I kind of feel like it could have just ended on the on the happy note, mm. you know, and um, the police showing up and Alice waving to the police and everything. But Savini bless his heart i mean and i think it's i think it's great because it gives us that one last scare uh the next scene in the hospital uh gives us a bit of uncertainty we then we cut mm. to the lake at the end and we see the bubbles coming up we're like mm. is is the boy is the zombie boy living in the lake like you know mm. but it changes the entire movie if the scene is real that's one thing if it's if it's just in alice's head that's another entirely but the second movie almost doesn't even follow from the first one. It retcons the first yeah. one. So the the Carrie ending that, that Savini suggested, I think, is is just that brilliant jump scare ending mm. that you, you absolutely, yes, you absolutely needed. Because the, the ending, quote unquote, where Alice is just at the lake, right? And then you know Mrs. Voorhees is going to come up behind her. That doesn't feel like a false ending. That feels yep. like absolutely this is exactly what has to happen here. But when the music comes up and she's floating in the canoe and everything, and then and then Jason comes out, absolute, absolute perfect jump scare moment. But I do think it really it really set the stage for uh, for for a franchise that was not particularly well thought out. Yeah, like, I think that's true, because even then, like, I think even Savini and a few others have said, like, if jason coming out of the water to grab alice and pull her under if that was not in the final film because originally the original script from what i read you could uh tell me this as well is that it pretty much just did end with alice in the boat and the police rocking up and then that was basically where the film ends but then of course they added uh jason coming out of the water and pretty much savini did say oh yeah I saw Carrie, I thought, oh, we should do something like this yeah. for the ending of the film. Yeah, well, we wouldn't have the Friday the 13th franchise 
if we didn't have that scene of Jason coming out of the water, because it just ended with Alice in the boat with the police arriving, then yeah, this probably could have easily have just been a one-off film and yeah. that's about it. Yeah, she um she actually seen 139 uh, in the script. I'm looking at it right now, Bede. Um, mm-hmm. She walks slowly down the road away from the camp. There's mm. she's not she's not even on the lake. Uh, okay. She, she waves down the police car. Camera ban- pans back. Two men get out of the car. Um, come around to help Alice. And then the final shot, long shot of the camp with the sun sparkling and the waters of Crystal Lake. The canoe lies half sunken in the shallows. One paddle drifts in the current. The lake has swallowed its secret. All right. Mm. So, yeah, no no indication of Jason there whatsoever. It's just, you know, just goes out sort of, I don't want to say with a whimper, but definitely not with a bang. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, well, Jason in this scene was played by Ari Lehman. Uh, he's the first actor to play Jason. And funnily enough, he has a band that is called First Jason. I was going to ask, do you follow his band? Yeah. I haven't. I haven't, but I just know that he has a band called yeah. First Jason. And what's interesting, though, like an interesting theory that somebody brought up, and of course this would be retconned, but somebody had an idea because when we see Jason for the first time with his deformed face, they do describe what he looks like in other sources and interviews is one thing, but I think it might be a little too un-PC to say that yeah. in this uh in yeah, this in version this, let's yeah <laughs> yeah we won't say what that is but he definitely has a deformed face and somebody actually an interesting thought is like what if jason was actually just a normal looking child but that's how alice kind of sees jason as deformed or maybe pamela kind of in her mind oh, sees him as deformed but of course that would be recton as the series goes yeah, on yeah. but it's an interesting thing to kind of get into the mindset of both those characters in that moment I mean, we do see a glimpse of Jason in a quick little scene where he's in the water, but it is like, wow, Pamela sees it though. Yeah. So, and we don't really get a clear view of what Jason looks like with the makeup until the end, which I find very interesting. So there could be a little thing there to that theory. But again, like I said, it'll get retconned as it goes along. I will admit, Steve, I love the ending of the scene because I think the score Manfredini does in this scene is so beautiful. Uh, how it's shot is amazing. But also, I will admit, the first time I watched this movie, when Jason came out of the water and grabbed Alice, I jumped so high. Absolutely. I was not expecting it at all. And mind you, I wasn't scared during the movie up to this point. But this scene <laughs> made me jump so high. Yeah. Yeah, same. Same, man. I, like I said, Vince and my cousin Jason were watching this, and I know the three... It had to be past midnight. You know, we're downstairs watching it on HBO. My parents are upstairs sleeping, and I know the three of us just just, just screamed out and jumped. I know we did. Um, <laughs> we were too, well, what are you kids doing down there? You know, that that sort of thing. But um, it is. It's a classic ending, and I would I, you know... We, you know, here we're talking about, well, there's the script and there, you know, what came after it, you know, wouldn't change it for anything. You know, we're talking about rewriting and adding Mrs. Voorhees to the beginning at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would not change a moment of this ending. Oh, definitely not. Like, it's just the perfect ending to end the film on. And then, of course, we find Alice at the end in the hospital with the police and she asks, oh, did you find the boy? And they're like, there's no boy. But then it ends on a very haunting final line with her Alice saying, oh, then he's still there. He's still there. And then we get the shot of the lake. 
And from what I understand, the ripples in the lake, that was just something, a happy accident that happened. Really? Because it, and I thought that was cool because when you see it, you think almost like you say earlier, uh, it could be air bubbles or something like that. But it was a happy accident. They, they just had it, we're just going to shoot the shot of the lake and that was it. And then, of course, those little ripples just came into oh, that's great. the water. And it reminded me a little bit of... um. This is showing a little bit of myself because back when I was uh, in my early twenties or my late teens, I a friend, a few friends of mine, we directed. I made I directed a short black and white little ghost movie, which uh, <laughs> all right. And we had this scene where um, basically there was this shot, and I had where it got, a friend, my friend, was looking in the mirror, and we I had the camera in in the the bathtub in the back foreground with a shot and a bit of blood hit the water mm. and then he turns around and there's no blood there but when he turns around the tap let out a drip and it hit the water and it was like the perfect thing because he like see that and you think oh that's just <laughs> so it kind of reminded me of that taking me back to my you know when i made films and that so i love that because again it was a happy accident but it adds so much to yeah the ending and of course from here it would start off a whole franchise but also one more thing before we uh end our conversation on the film is that i completely forgot about this when the opening credits happen we only get the credits of the crew we don't actually get the cast credits until the end of the that's film right yeah and that's yeah. probably the one of the few times that i know of where i've ever seen that happen in a film and it also i guess in a way to kind of hide the fact that betsy palmer in the is in this film maybe but yeah it's weird that kind of seeing like opening credits it's just all the crew but the cast don't come the credits for them only appear at the end of the film and then it opens with starring betsy palmer yep as mrs Voorhees. like she's top billed in this mm. which i think is fantastic and then it goes to you know adrian king and uh, yeah, Osbien, and then those after that. But mm. yeah, it. I think you're right that you know we get the we get the cast in the beginning. Um, or, I'm sorry, the crew. We get the crew in the beginning, and it was really, I mean, a cast of unknowns. Most of them came from uh, Broadway. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the only outside of Betsy Palmer, I think the only of the young cast who was at least had some kind of big break prior to this film was Kevin Bacon because he was in Animal House just before this film. <laughs> yeah yeah that's right and um yeah i guess that could be a wrap on our conversation of friday the 13th as of course this film came out in on may 9th 1980 in the united states it cost uh over half a million dollars to make and then it ended up making 59 million dollars at the box office that was a massive hit i don't know what that would be in today's currency but <laughs> that would have to be at least nearly over at least 100 million or so absolutely Absolutely. Oh, my God. As expected, uh, the film was <laughs> viscerated by critics, particularly uh, Siskel and Ebert, who really went out of this this film. And particularly Gene Siskel in particular. And uh, this is what kind of rubs me the wrong way about him, but also like uh, Siskel and Ebert's kind of thoughts on the slasher movement in the 80s is like in his review, like he basically called like, Short S. Cunningham, a despicable human being for yeah. making this film. They had felt like this movie set back the feminist movement, like this film was made oh by God. people. 
like who wanted basically women to go back to their place rather than <laughs> in society. And also like in his review, like his written review is that he actually gave the address to one of the financiers of the film and basically wrote which town Betsy Palmer lived in and basically suggested people write angry letters oh. to them. And to me, that is really horrible. I mean, Grant, if you didn't like the movie, that's fine. But don't do that. And this wouldn't be the last time they do that, do that, because they did basically the same thing a few years later with Silent Night, Deadly Night as well. That's I did not know that. That's unconscionable. Yeah, to me, that is very low form as a film critic to do something like that. Hence, like, at some point, I would love to go into the discussion on Ebert and Siskel's relationship with the slasher genre at some point. Maybe that could be a future episode at one point, because I've always had wanted to tackle that subject at some yeah. point. But uh, maybe down the track at some point. But uh, but the film became a huge hit, and then, of course, re- created a franchise that we all know and love today. And we created a podcast for. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, before we do, uh, Steve, your final thoughts on the film overall. I, it deserves every bit of its classic status. Mm. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thoughts on the franchise? Eh, not sure. <laughs> not, we'll we'll not get to those. Not 100% sure I'm in love with the whole thing, but this, as, as a standalone, this is mm. just, it, it deserves everything it gets. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I would say I agree this is a great film. I don't know if it's my favorite of the franchise because I haven't watched the all the films in a little while. I'm kind of cur- very curious to kind of see where this will fall with the rest of the franchise. But I believe, I have a good feeling this will probably be one of the high tier ones because it is a great film. It is really well made. It definitely has a lot of aspects to it that I wasn't a- didn't occur to me until this recent watch that I think I personally thought elevated the film for me. Uh, the performances are really strong and there's so many iconic things about it. And of course it created a franchise that made me fall in love with horror. So for that, it'll always get kudos for go. me. Now we have a little segment, Steve, that you and I have thought <laughs> up. And this is something we're going to be talking about on every episode of the show. Uh, maybe just for the films themselves. So maybe not when we do the other off topic ones episodes like on the ripoffs or the fan films and stuff like that but this is a little segment we're gonna call did they deserve to die (laughs) now this little segment is when you and i discuss if there's a like let's just say pamela and jason definitely don't have any discrimination when it comes to their victims. They'll kill anyone who comes their way, whether they're young, old, male, female, or have a specific different gender, race. They don't care. If they see you as fodder, they will kill you. But sometimes, though, while there are characters throughout this franchise who definitely deserve their fate, there's definitely characters who definitely did not deserve their fate. So for our little segment of like, did they deserve to die? Now, Steve, is there a character from the original film that you feel like shouldn't didn't deserve to die? Yeah, I do. I I think Ned did Ooh. not deserve to die. Now that's you know that's contentious, I know, but I think of all of them, every one of these people was very. Very likable. I can't think of anyone in this movie who did 
quote, deserve uh, to die. But I just, I felt so bad for Ned. Hmm. Uh, just because he was the, he was basically your your third wheel on the whole on the whole business, and I j- I just felt for Ned. I don't know if I had to. That's my that's my answer for the for the for the cast. Um, if I had to look, you know, did Jack deserve to die? Well, no, no. Um, Marcy, no. None of them really did. But for me, it's Ned who stands out because he was the possibly the I don't know the saddest of them mm. and it just seemed it just seemed wrong he's already got nothing going on for him he's mm. you know brenda doesn't want anything to do with him he's a bit like um shelly would be in part three yeah you know he's just completely nobody wanted to have anything to do with shelly ned doesn't have it that bad but um mm. for me yeah yeah i didn't um i didn't like seeing ned go um also the snake well i was gonna say like obviously the snake didn't deserve the time <laughs> Like for real, let's just put that out there. But I actually had a hard time thinking about which character did I didn't think deserved to die because there's a lot of good candidates for this one. But surprisingly, I'm actually going to go with Marcy as really? my pick okay. because there's a great scene earlier in the film where she talks about a nightmare that she oh. used to have as a kid about where she was. Like she talks about how she's afraid of thunder, thunder and lightning storms. And she used to have dreams when she was a kid where she was in one, but then the rain turned into blood, which it definitely foreshadows her death later in the film. Yeah, And that to me, maybe it's because I've been slightly going on an existential <laughs> thoughts as of late, <laughs> but it's like when you have like something like a dream or anything like that, in a way kind of starts to question your morality. And at that moment, I feel sorry for her because it's like, her dreams are literally predicting her own death. And in that moment, she's reminded of that. And she probably hasn't thought about those dreams in so long. And then not long after that, she gets an accident to the face. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, that's tragic. I'll give you that. That's tragic. Mm. So those are our picks and for <laughs> this little segment. So I'm looking forward to talking about it on the next episode. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess that could be a wrap on this debut episode of Beaten Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake. And thank you, Steve, for being an awesome co-host for this show. Thank you, Beat. I'm looking forward to part two. D- me as well. We'll definitely have a lot to talk about with that one. And of course, everyone, as what we're going to be doing for this show I probably already mentioned this earlier, but I will say it again, just in case if I did it. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to this show, it will be a monthly show. It'll drop on the 13th of every month. So I'm happy that this episode drops today for because this is Friday the 13th in October. So it only made sense to drop the first episode of that here. So... From here on out, no matter what day it is, if it's the 13th, that is when the episode will drop. I, I'm very excited for this series, especially because it's very obviously you and I have a massive love for Friday the 13th. And I'm excited to go into these films and also the sort of the off-topic Friday the 13th related projects we're going to be talking about. And uh, yeah, and also thank you to all the listeners for tuning into this debut episode. I'm surprised it went as long as it did, but I think we had a lot to say about this first film, so we'll we'll let it slide for now. And also, like, yes, yeah, these first episodes will de- first two episodes 
of the show will just be me and Steve, but we'll definitely bring guests in at some point to have others chime in on this franchise. But but before we wrap up the episode today, uh, Steve, where can people find you on the internet this week? Um, I have a column at forcesofgeek.com called um, Creep Shows and Fright Nights, a look back at 80s horror. Um, you can find me over there. And also my, my letterbox, uh, which is letterbox.com slash Fulchirama, uh, if you want to see what I've been watching. Awesome. And if people want to find me personally, they can find me on all the socials, uh, Twitter, Blue Sky, Facebook, at Bede Germine. And you can also find all my work over at supermarcy.com, as well as all the other podcasts that I do with my co-host and our mutual friend, Supermarcy, on all the podcasts over there. You can follow all updates of this show on the official Twitter account for Bede vs. The Living Dead. Uh, we will, the show, This show itself probably won't have its own separate feed, so this will just be on the Bede vs. The Living Dead feed in terms of social media and also when the episodes drop on all podcast streaming services. So that's where the episode will be. And also, uh, so you can find Bede and C versus Camp Crystal Lake on the official Twitter account for Bede vs. The Living Dead at twitter.com slash BedeVSTLD. Also at Blue Sky at BedeVSTLD. And also, yeah, listen to this show and also the and the other show, Bede vs. The Living Dead, on all podcast streaming services everywhere. So, yep, that is the end for this debut episode of Bede and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake. We hope you all enjoyed this one very much. Come back to us on November 13th, which is a Monday, uh, Australia time, to hear episode two of the show in which we will discuss Friday the 13th, part two. So stay tuned for that, everyone, and we'll see you all later. See everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Feed and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake. Be sure to subscribe to the show via the official Beat vs. The Living Dead podcast feed on your podcast player of choice. Keep up to all updates of the show via the official Beat vs. The Living Dead Twitter and Blue Sky accounts at BeadVSTLD and on Facebook under Beat vs. The Living Dead. The artwork was brought to you by Supermarcy and the music was brought to you by Deno. See you later everyone.